Good morning, everyone. Great to be speaking to you today. Uh, as John said, my name's Chris, and I'm part of the staff team here at Grace Church, and uh, great to be carrying on our new series today, Disciple Making Community, Defining Our Culture. Uh, we kicked this off a couple of Sundays ago with John talking about the Bible, and then we had the marathon interrupt us last week, but we're back again and picking up just where we left off. Just to recap some of what John said when he kicked off a couple of weeks ago, kind of the thinking behind this series and why we're doing it. God spoke to us as a church about a year and a half ago about, uh, from a verse in the Bible um, in Isaiah where he says, forget the former things and instead look ahead because I'm doing a new thing. And as the elders and the leaders kind of began to pray and discuss, okay, well, what does this mean for us? What does this look like for us? One of the things that became clear was this newly realized sense of vision, which is this, that we are to be a disciple-making community. It's who we are already, and it's what we aspire to be. Now, our, our vision and our call as a church includes a whole range of things. You know, planting churches is a big part of what we want to be and do. Serving our city, Nottingham, blessing the poor, all of that stuff. That can all find, I think, its roots here in disciple-making community. Simply that we, we want to make disciples, take the Great Commission seriously, that is to help people get to know Jesus for themselves and to follow him well and do it all within a loving, strong, healthy community. That is what we're going for. And so the next step then from realizing, oh yeah, this is us, this is what we need to be, it just made sense that we should start talking about, well, what does that look like for us? Uh, what does our culture look like? And so over the course of this next term, we are doing just that. We are defining the culture of this church and going through 10 core values of us as a people, the hallmarks of what makes us us, who we are, and we'll be talking about them week in, week out, so that we all get an understanding of who we are now, but also who we are to be in the future as well. And uh, John started with We Believe two weeks ago, looking at We Believe in the Bible. We believe that it's God's word, his gift to us, we believe that it has authority, that it's useful for our lives. And we love scripture. We love the Bible. And today, in part two, we're looking at we worship, which is the second of our values. One that's very close to my heart as the guy who looks after worship here at Grace Church. Delighted to be able to talk about this this morning. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read out the value for you, and, uh, and then we'll go from there. It should come up on the screen as well. It says, we were made to glorify God. So we prioritize worshiping him when we meet together, making space for the gifts of the Holy Spirit to be used to encourage us as we celebrate him. And marvelous, if you could just leave that up for a second, that'd be great. So this is what we mean when we say we worship. This is our value. And just as an aside, um, all of the values that we're gonna be talking through this term um, are already on our website. Uh, so if you do wanna refer back to them, just go on there, find the About Us menu, click on our values, you can read them all through for yourself. So worship today. Worship actually appears in the Bible 8,629 times. It's quite a few. God gives it a lot of airtime, which means it must be incredibly important to him. He must care a great deal about how it's done, why we do it, what its purpose is, and the intricacies of what's going on when we do it. Now, I'll be the first to admit that I did not read all 8,629 verses in the lead up to today, I thought we'd read them all together. No, I'm joking. That would be cruel and unkind. I didn't read all 8,000 of them, but I did read around a few. And the Bible has a lot to say on it. And I, I've decided to start with Psalm 100 as our launch pad. 
into today's message. It's a very short psalm, just five verses, but it teaches us a lot about worship just in that short amount of time. It's a personal favorite of mine. And the plan is to use Psalm 100 as our kind of starting point, and then we'll move into and we'll cover a few different verses later on as we go through as well. So I'm going to read Psalm 100 out. The verses will be on the screen. If you do have a Bible, I encourage you to have it open and keep it open so that you can refer back to it as we talk through. Um, So let's read Psalm 100, and we'll read all the way through from verse 1 to 5. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good, and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. So there we go. I think it's a beautiful passage of scripture. And as I said, today we want to use this as a launch pad to talk about worship. And particularly, I want to focus on verse 3. And hopefully, by the end of today, we'll start there, move into some other passages. And by the end of the message, we'll all be in a place where we believe and we can see that the people of God, worshipping God, is one of the most beautiful, most powerful and profound things that we can witness in this age. I believe that with my whole heart and hopefully we'll show that that's the case this morning. So this passage, Psalm 100, it is absolutely packed full of emotion. It is so exuberant and and vibrant, the, the shouts for joy, this outburst of delight. And then kind of in the middle of it, you get the third verse, which in some ways doesn't seem to match the others. It it seems a little bit more collected, a little bit more composed than the shouts for joy and the the rampant praise of the rest of it. Why is that? Verse 3, it says, let's just read it again. Know that the Lord is God. It's he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Now, I think that for all the reasons we could cite for worshipping, why do we worship? I think most of them, if not all of them, could find their beginnings in verse 3 the principle that we need to know what or who it is that we worship. In fact, the, the, one of the commentators I read, a chap called Derek Kidner, he says that to know is to have firm ground underfoot. That's the prerequisite of praise. And this knowledge is ours by gift. It all starts with knowing, in our case, God, who we worship. That is the firm ground underfoot. And I want to try and lay that out for us first, do a bit of groundwork there, and then use that as our stepping stone, as I said, into looking at the spiritual dynamic of worship in the New Testament and now today as well. And uh, Jesus alluded to the importance of knowing what we worship when he he spoke to a Samaritan woman, uh, met her at a well and had a good conversation with her. And in it, he said, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. So clearly it is important that we have an understanding and knowledge of who and what we worship. And so what we'll do now is we'll just work through some of this verse and see what it says. What can we know about God from this? So firstly, the opening line, know that the Lord is God. Really simple, very straightforward and basic in some ways. But I think in that one line, there's so much reason to worship God from. 
Know that the Lord is God. Know that he is the one that is in and of himself, perfectly complete and totally worthy of praise in its entirety. Irrespective of us and anything that he has made, he, he is worth praise because he is God. Know that the Lord is God. Now the word worship actually comes from the old English word worth-ship. That's where it finds its roots. And um, I think in our society today, we are attributing worth to people all the time. It's in our nature. It's part of our kind of broken human condition. We can't help it. We're forever kind of judging people and putting people up on pedestals. And uh, one example of this I've been uh, reminded of recently is when um, my wife and I have been watching this program on Channel 4 called The Circle, which I don't know if you know about it. It's not great television. Um, but it's one of those programs that you just like can't not watch it. So I didn't set out to watch it, but B was watching it on her laptop and I was like, oh, what's that? And that was it, totally hooked. After that point, I was like, I'm all in on the circle. The premise of this program is this. A bunch of people get put in a block of apartments and the only interaction they have with each other is via a messaging app. That's it. No human interaction for about three weeks. And what's so interesting to watch is the way that they begin to assess one another based on whether they think they're good or not. And in the end, decide whether or not that person is worth their vote to stay. And I just couldn't help but feel like that's kind of a little example of what human society is just like. We all do it all the time. We're forever kind of making judgments, probably subconsciously, about whether people are worth our time or whether they're worth the effort. Now, if we were to take all of the good qualities that we know, the best things that we can understand and comprehend with our minds, and if we were to then magnify each one of them up to the highest degree of perfection, we would then find the one of infinite worth for whom there should be no limit on our assessment of him. And that is God, the one who is worth praise in its entirety before all things and after all things. The one who was, is, and is to come is worth praise just because he is God. First sentence, wow. Then it moves on. It says, yes, know that he is God, but also know that he made us and that we are his. Now, he, he didn't need us, as I've just said. He was perfectly complete in and of himself. He required nothing to be made God. He just was. And yet he chooses to make you and me. He makes a choice. Such was the extent and the extravagance of his love that he didn't want to keep himself to himself. And so, as the Bible says, he crafted us in his image that we might reflect something of his nature and glorify him in the process. Now, that kind of sounds a little bit selfish on the surface when you put it like that. Hang on, so he, did, he just made us to make himself look better. No, not quite. What he did was he made us because he knew that he wanted something to pour his love onto and because the best thing then for us was actually to know him. So actually making us was not a selfish thing. He was like, I'm going to make humans and they are going to find total fulfillment, all the joy and delight that they could ever seek in me. It's the best thing for them, for us. So he made us in love because it's the best thing for us. This one of infinite worth that actually needed nothing. He was perfect in and of himself. Wow. But then 
It goes on. It says, yes, know that he is God, know that he made us, and also know that we are his people. And it says the sheep of his pasture. Now, don't let the animal imagery fool you here or put you off, because actually that picture is one of tender care of a, of a shepherd to his sheep. One of protection, devotion. He will fight for us. He cares about us. That's in his nature. He made us that we might be his flock and his people. So we know these things. We know, because here in the Bible, that the Lord is God, and he's of infinite worth in and of himself. We know that he made you and me so that we could enjoy and know the total pleasures and delights that are in him, as it says in Psalm 16. And we know that he cares for us deeply, passionately. This is where worship begins, in a right understanding of who God is and our relation to him. Now, I know it, it might sound a little bit kind of deep and theoretical. It's like, oh, that's not really, that's not going to be enough. Well, it should be enough just to know who he is. The problem is that there's still this sort of this disconnect. I think that's why we sometimes we find it tricky. It's like, it's all well and good that he is mighty and awesome in all of his ways, but there still feels like there's something in the way. There's a big gap, something that I can't bridge on my own. And you're right. There is something, or there was something in the way for us that stopped us from connecting with what could seem just like a distant deity. But thankfully for us, it doesn't stop here in verse 3. Because things have changed, and they have changed considerably for us. Because now we know what it says in Romans 5. Verses 7 to 8, Paul writes this. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So there was something in the way. It was our sin. We were still sinners. We, being made in his image, had decided to reject God, to turn away from him, to rebel from him and pursue our own selfish ambition. But did he take back his love? Did he put a cap on it there and then? No. His love went further. His love fought harder than we could ever truly imagine. But now we know that it's true. God demonstrated his love in Jesus by sending his son to bear the brunt of the punishment for sin. That he felt the full force of that punishment that should have been yours, should have been mine. We were the ones that deserved it. But God's love was such, he said, no, I'm going to send my son to be a savior for you, to be the sacrifice for you. Why? So that we could be saved. So that that gap could be bridged. So that we could be set free and so that we could be adopted which means that we, we no longer just know of a God of infinite worth, some distant deity far off with this disconnect in between. Instead, everything I've said is still true, but now we know that God as Father. We know that God intimately. We know that he calls us son and daughter. 
Once it was about being one of many, one of a people, a plot of land, a sheep in a pasture. Well, now Jesus has bought for you a seat at the table and it has your name inscribed on it. That is what we now know. That he's God. He's of infinite worth in and of himself. He made us in his love. He cares deeply for us. He fights for us. And we know what he's done and that we have been the recipients of it. That knowledge changes everything. And yes, you bet we worship when we know that. When we truly get to grips with the truth of that, worship is the only response. Worship is the right response. When we know these things, when we read those verses, we praise and we worship. And worship is different now to when this verse in Psalm 100 was written. It's very different. I want to explain something of why so that we can understand what goes on when we worship together on a Sunday. See, after Jesus did what he did and went to the cross and died for our sin, he was buried in a tomb, and then three days later he was resurrected. He came back to life. And then while he was on earth, in that short time afterwards, he made a promise to his disciples, his followers, that they were going to be baptized, immersed in the Holy Spirit. And true to his word, at Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, we can read this, that they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The Spirit. Now things get really exciting. Now, it doesn't mean at this point that the Spirit has not been doing anything. The Spirit has not been just like kicking back in heaven with a cold drink and being like, yo, Father, you do creation, get glory there. Jesus, you do salvation, get glory there. And then boom, I'm going to come rocking in at Pentecost and I'm going to have my moment. It's really not what's going on. The Spirit has been throughout all of those things, but all of a sudden, something is different. Something does change. In this moment in Acts, the Spirit comes in a new, in a more powerful way than it ever had done before. And that moment signified the beginning of a new age, the age of the Spirit. Is after Jesus ascended to heaven, he went back to be with his Father. Between that and the day when Jesus returns, which is yet to happen, if you haven't worked it out, we are somewhere in the middle. That's where we are now. We are in the age of the Spirit. And I think, and I hope you agree, that that is incredibly exciting. Because worship in this age takes on a whole new dynamic as a result. And it, it comes to life in a way that it just couldn't before. It couldn't come to life that way here in Psalm 100. But now, because the Spirit has been poured out, worship is different. Now, before I get into why, I do just want to make a comment on the fact that I know that the Bible also talks about worship being something of our whole lives, that it's not just restricted to what we do on a Sunday. I understand that, but I want to focus on that today because I think so much of what the Bible says about worship, it, it almost assumes that the church is together. In so many of the phrases, it says, you know, when they were together, as you gather, when you come together, that language comes up time and time again. 
And we must remember that although each one of you, each one of us, if you have put your faith in Jesus, you have been saved as an individual. He saved you personally, yes. But you have been saved into something much bigger than just yourselves. Jesus died for a people to bring you into a family, what the Bible calls the body of Christ. So when we worship, it's not just about me and God and you and God and lots of dotted people around the room. It's about us and our God. And so that's the focus for today. What happens when the people of God gather to worship in the age of the Spirit? Well, we find a brilliant description of what this looks like in the book of Ephesians, where Paul writes to a church in Ephesus in chapter 5. It says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So the Spirit's been poured out at Pentecost. And then we have this verse where it says, and be filled with the Spirit. And you think, yeah, great, I'm going to get filled. But it's very easy for us to fall into thinking that we get filled once at the beginning and then basically just hope that it doesn't run out before we die. Which is quite a sad way of thinking about it. It's not a very exciting prospect, is it? Now, what this verse actually means in Ephesians, where it says, be filled with the Spirit, the real true sense of that is, Continue to be filled with the Spirit. Go on being filled with the Spirit. Ongoing, dynamic, with movement. It's not like you just topped up your credit on your phone and you just hope it's going to last. So you come to church, you think, I hope there's enough left today, otherwise church is going to be well boring. No, 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 no. Every time you come to church, every time you gather as the people of God, you can expect a fresh infilling of the Spirit. It's what the Bible teaches. Time and time and time again. In fact, one of the uh, commentators, Francis Fawkes, puts it like this. The practical implication of this is that the Christian is to leave his life open, to be filled constantly and repeatedly by the divine spirit. Our approach is supposed to be one of being totally open to whatever the spirit wants to do in us. Every single time we come to worship. Now, why am I telling you this? It's all great stuff, of course it is. Why going into it in such detail? Well, because the Spirit changes how we worship significantly. Our approach is totally different in light of this fact. When we gather, we come expecting a fresh infilling of his power. That's what the Bible tells us. And it's in that environment, in an atmosphere of genuine faith and expectation that, yeah, you know what? Today I'm going to get filled again with the power of God. In that environment, the people of God the body of Christ comes alive. And I, I almost mean that literally. Let me explain why. As a church, we take seriously these passages like Ephesians 5 that I've just read and uh, 1 Corinthians 14 where Paul says that each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue or interpretation. We look at those scriptures and we model our worship on that. That's why we do it the way that we do as you've witnessed this morning. And it means that we all have an opportunity to contribute something to the worship time. It's not just a band at the front doing some songs for half an hour and then you sit down. The band get us going, yes, and help and facilitate. But then after that, different voices around the room. Someone reading something from the Bible. Someone praying. 
Someone bringing a song, tongues and interpretation, a different voice, a different heart and a different insight from a whole range of people. And it's there that when worship looks like that, it's almost as if each contribution, each thing around the room is like the body of Christ begins to limber up. Every time someone prays or brings something from the Bible, it's like some oil has been applied to the joints and the thing begins to move and it comes to life as we, as one, flow in the spirit together. Not just one person making the decisions, but allowing God to come and inspire and bring things and he makes all the decisions. The church comes alive as we worship in the spirit. And at times, it can be kind of clunky. And just to say, if you're new to Grace Church, maybe today's your first time, and you thought, well, this worship is kind of different. Everyone's saying stuff. This is bizarre. Firstly, there's no pressure on you to do the same. You feel very relaxed and free just to stand back and observe. But if you've been part of Grace Church for, I don't know, maybe like three weeks, you'll have definitely been in those times where it doesn't always just go to plan. In theory, you're like, that sounds great. Then you try and do it in practice. You're like, this is a nightmare. Because <laughs> what happens is someone on this side of the room starts singing a song beautifully, wonderfully. But someone on that side of the room at pretty much the same time starts praying. But that person is so loud singing that everyone around them can only hear the song. And they think, well, great, well, we'll do that. They all start joining in. And everyone on that side of the room is like, hey, pipe down. We're trying to hear this guy praying. Now, maybe that's not actually how you respond. Maybe it's just a sign of my own heart. But I'm painting a caricature because that's kind of what it's like sometimes. You think, wait, hang on. What, who? It's fine. It's absolutely fine. And actually, it's one of my favorite things. When you have more than one person that are so zealous for God, they so want to express something of their heart, they happen to just do it at the same time, great. The more the merrier, within reason. Um, <laughs> my favorite moment, I think, of leading worship is when it happened, not once, not twice, but three times, where you have two poor people in the room that are like, today I'm going to be bold, I'm going to praise Jesus, and I'm going to pray out. You think, yes. And they both do it at the same time. You think, oh, well done, but just stop for a second. They both stop. And there's, like, there's that pause and you think, okay, now that we've had the first one out of the way, chances are the sec one of them will pipe up and it'll be fine. But lo and behold, they have exactly the same thought at exactly the same time. You think, man, what are the chances of that? And they both do it again. At which point you're like, okay, okay we've had our fun. Now the odds are definitely in our favor. It surely will not happen for a third time. And the room goes silent. Everyone's waiting like, which one of them is going to get in first? And then they do it at the same time. <laughs> like, no. <laughs> but it's absolutely fine. That's what the leaders are here for. When we have a worship leader, when we have meeting leaders, they're the ones that have to organize that and just manage it. All you need is someone to say, okay, you stop, you go, then you go afterwards, and then we'll crack on. It's absolutely fine. I would much rather that than everyone be stood scared, waiting and thinking, is someone else going to go? You do not need to worry about that. You do not need to be conscious of that. You do not need to be embarrassed about that. I would much rather you express your heart and the church hear it, even if it takes a little bit of person management. And in my opinion, it is totally worth it. Because for every awkward moment where you think, wow, that did not go well, you get another totally God moment. 
that no one else could have mustered up were it not for the spirit in someone. You know, where maybe you had it, where just someone prays in the room. And it's simple, and it's short, but it's childlike in its nature. And you can just, you can hear in the tone of their voice, their desire to want to just express something of their heart for God. And in that moment, it's just like God comes crashing into the room. And the room totally changes as a result. Not because anyone up here has made a decision to do this song or that, but because God put something in someone's heart. They were bold enough to bring it. And all of a sudden, God is here in a mighty way. Or maybe it's when someone sings for the first time. They might have prayed before. They've read something from the Bible before. But they've never sung because singing is scary. They feel self-conscious. They feel nervous. But for some reason on this day, they couldn't help but make melody to the Lord. It just came bursting out of them. So they sing loudly, proudly of their God, boasting in Jesus Christ. And that little moment for them, their breakthrough takes us all through into a new place, into the presence of God. The church comes to life. It's one of my favorite things. It's beautiful. And God gets glory. He delights in every single prayer, every single reading, every single tongue and interpretation. He is thrilled as we step out in faith to worship our God like that. In January, it'll be 10 years since I first gave my life to follow Jesus. And in that time, I've had the immense privilege of leading worship in a whole range of situations, ranging from leading kids, which is amazing. When you see little kids so delighted to sing, there's no one like Jesus, it, honestly, it thrills your heart. I've led worship with youth, with young people, teenagers, who bravely, for the first time, are just learning to worship on their own, like without a group of leaders to facilitate and help them. And again, you just think how proud I am of them for trying to do that. I've led worship in my church where I was brought up back in the south in a Baptist church, led worship in all of our congregations here with immense diversity, but so many different voices and expressions of worship that come out of it. Led worship in prison. That was a new one. I remember going in the first time, I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I went in with Pete and I was like, Pete, you've got to save me out of this if anything goes wrong, bruv. But honestly, it was amazing because, you know, here you have some people who are literally held captive by their surroundings, but somehow their praise goes beyond that. Their love for Jesus supersedes all of that. About a month ago, I led worship at the Jackie Pullinger event we hosted here. And um, I'll put my hand up and say that I underestimated that time of worship big time. Because I warned the band beforehand. I was like, look, guys, I don't really know what the kind of congregation is going to be like. So it might be kind of hard work. It might be a bit slow going. So don't expect much. Boy, was I wrong. That room, honestly, was totally electric. I, I reckon it's one of my favorite times of seeing the people of God worship. And in that room, you had hundreds of people who are broken, who are fighting addictions in their life, who are homeless, who are battling. But again, their praise, their worship went well beyond their circumstance. And they were abandoned, totally lost in Jesus. I even managed to get on the stage at Soul Survivor once. Which if you don't know, Soul Survivor is like a massive Christian festival for like 10,000 young people. 
I didn't storm the stage. That's kind of what it sounds like when I say I promise I didn't do that. I was part of some like backing choir thing. And uh, just to bring you into my life a little bit, at the time, I was convinced that was going to be my big break. I'd like just become a Christian and I was like, oh boy, here we go. You know what? I've got a calling to lead worship in my life and it is going to kick off right here, right now. I basically expected to get up on the stage at Soul Survivor, sing one song with the choir, and then the worship leader would be like, whoa, whoa, whoa everybody stop. Somebody get this guy a guitar. Chris, would you, would you lead worship for the rest of Soul Survivor? Because that would just really serve us. Suffice to say, that is not what happened. I'm not even convinced the microphones were turned on for the choir. So, But anyway... I got to see thousands and thousands and thousands of people worshipping Jesus. And in all of those settings, all the things that I've witnessed in my years of following him, one thing that I've learned is that there is absolutely nothing like the people of God worshipping God. Nothing. The world has nothing that compares to it. You know, big concerts and gigs where people are singing those songs, it looks impressive, but it's empty. There's nothing in it. There's no substance. When the people of God sing, it is filled with the power of the holy, mighty one who created heaven and earth. Compare those. There is nothing like the people of God worshipping their God. Rick, do you and the band want to come up? And as we worship together, as his people, as his children, as a body, as we muddle through from time to time in the way that we do things here, and you think, man, sometimes it's just not easy. It's hard work. You're like, yeah, but it's worth it. As we enjoy God in exuberant praise and celebration, as we also then dwell in his presence with reverence and awe, I can't help but feel and think and totally believe in fact that this is what we're meant to do. You know what makes me think that? is reading the book of Revelation. Right at the end of the Bible, where this guy John has a vision of heaven, he gets a glimpse of what heaven is like. You know what's going on in heaven? You know what they're doing in heaven? They're worshipping. Day in, day out unending, unstoppable praise around the throne of God. Jesus is there, sat at the right hand, still bearing the marks of the cross, but crowned in glory. That's what heaven's like. And if it's heaven's priority, surely it's got to be our priority as well. And there's that line, isn't there, in the Lord's Prayer, it says, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, what better way to draw on and bring down something of heaven itself to earth than by worshipping and joining in that eternal chorus around the throne of God. The people of God worshipping God is the best thing in the world. And we're just warming up for eternity. How cool is that? So what we're going to do with the time that we've got left it's just going to do that. We're just going to worship. Rick and the band is going to lead us in a song.